Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for keeping us safe, and uh, we pray for all those guys who are on spring break that you would uh, be with them, help them to relax, uh, have a great time with their families, uh, keep them safe as well. Father, we uh, pray that you would uh, use this last week of this series to uh, speak to our hearts, encourage us, motivate us, and continue your job of, of changing us from the inside out, that we may truly live as men who uh, follow Jesus Christ and live for Christ and have our hope fully focused on the future of what you're going to do for us. We love you and we uh, give you this time together and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, just by way of reminder, uh, this is the last week. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. Um, I actually gave you the wrong dates last week, but it's the 22nd and the 29th of April, only on Thursday evenings. We're not going to be able to do it um, in the, the morning, but we're going to do a series called Sex, Sin, and the Supreme Court. And uh, Ricky Gillette is coming, and he's going to speak for two weeks, the 22nd and the 29th, Thursday nights, uh, 7 o'clock. We're going to serve dinner about 6.30. And he's going to talk about the whole issue of same-sex marriage and what do we do with that issue as it continues to grow and pressure in on us. How should we respond to it? Uh, it's going to be a great series. He's a wonderful speaker and he's going to answer some, you know, pretty basic ideas. Like it's going to happen to you if it hadn't happened already. What do you do when you have a loved one, a friend, a relative who sends you an invitation to come to their wedding and it's a gay wedding? Should you go? Should you not go? How should you respond to that? He's going to deal with a lot of practical issues as it relates to this whole agenda and our response to it. So that's going to be the 22nd, 29th of April. Then in... 28th, of April? Logan? It's Logan's fault. It's 21st and 28th, whatever that is, that, those weeks of April. We'll send you out an email so you'll, you'll know all about it. Third and fourth Thursday. Yeah, third and fourth Thursday. Golly, I'm, now I'm confused. Um, It is on a Friday. We moved it to Friday. Okay. So now that you're thoroughly confused, um, good grief. Anyway, we'll send you an email because I don't even know what we're doing now. Um, then in June and July, we're going to do a seven-week series on Hebrews chapter 11, uh, that great uh, hall of faith, and we're going to take the different characters there. We're going to go back into the Old Testament and see why they had faith and uh, just really study faith. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to live by faith? Because that'll be in June and July, and it'll only be on Thursday nights. It's not a Friday, it's Thursdays. So anyway, we'll, we'll send you emails on all of this so you don't have to think about it. All right, chapter 15. What I want to do is we're only going to really deal with the first 13 verses, so I want to read them, and then we'll dig into them this morning. And the reason we're not doing all of 15 and 16 is, is simply because a lot of 16 is just him summarizing, greetings, hey, you know, talking to people he knows. And so it's not really pertinent to what we're doing this morning. So we're just going to read the first 13 verses. Chapter 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So really, this is kind of the summary, the wrap-up uh, of his letter, and then he's going to go into some uh, greetings and some things he's saying to the local church there. But I want to go back to where we started and just recap. This, this whole thing has been about the gospel. And we saw chapter 1, verse 16, this is kind of the um, thesis statement for the entire book. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel, which is what the whole letter is about, is the power of God for salvation. And so he started with chapter one and he goes all the way to chapter 16, building on the gospel. What is the gospel? How do you get saved? How do you get made right with God? And uh, you know from over the weeks we've done this that he clearly showed from the first three chapters that everybody stands guilty, condemned, at, at the same, in the same problem before God. They cannot fix their problem. They're sinners. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. They can't fix it. They can't do anything to make themselves right with God. And then he goes into, so how do we get made right with God? Well, it's through faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone, nothing else, not works, not good effort. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the whole book has been about the gospel and it's the righteousness, the kind of righteousness that God accepts. What kind of righteousness does God accept? The kind that is provided by God through Christ for us, not the kind we produce. So again, that's been really what he's talked about from the get-go, and it's always based on faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And so he said in chapter 1, verse 1, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he's called to be an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's God's good news. It's the way he determined and decided before the foundation of the world to save men because we couldn't save ourselves. And so he's going to wrap it up and he's going to really kind of give us a closing kind of a charge. What do we do with this information now? Now that we've wrapped up Romans, what are we going to do with what we've heard? How do we apply it to our lives and let it change our lives? The gospel, according to Paul, is the gospel of God concerning who? Jesus Christ, his son. And we know that, right? I think if I ask anyone in the room, you would say that. But it's something we need to think about constantly. It's God's gospel. It's his plan concerning his son, who was the descendant of David. That speaks of his humanity. But he also was declared to be the son of God because of his resurrection. 
his deity. He's the God-man. He's Jesus Christ, sin in human flesh, died on a cross, rose again, now sits at the right hand of the Father. That's the gospel. And I'm, I'm more and more convinced the more I study Romans, the more I study the Word of God, that the gospel is not just how do you get saved. It's, it's your salvation. It's your sanctification all the way through your glorification. It's the whole process. And so that's one of the things he's going to really kind of end up talking about in this last chapter. And we know in chapter 14, we covered this last week, chapter 14 was really uh, dealing with a situation happening in those house churches in Rome between believers. And it was a very practical issue going on where they were judging one another. And, and I refer to them as gray areas, areas that... Um, I'm free to do this because the Bible doesn't say I can't, but there were other people saying, well, I don't feel free to do that because I have a, my conscience won't let me. And they were arguing with one another over these issues that were not dealt with in the scriptures blatantly. And so some were feeling like I can't eat meat because meat has possibly been sacrificed to idols, so I can't eat meat. Other believers in the church were saying, I can eat any meat I want because the Bible said I can and so they were beginning to have conflicts, and he refers to one group as the weaker brother and one as the stronger brother. It has nothing to do with that you're a, a more mature believer necessarily. It just means that you may not know what the Bible says or doesn't say about those issues. But he's telling them they've got to get along. They've got to learn to love one another. They've got to learn to live in unity. And chapter 15, the very first verses carry on that theme because he says, we who are strong, we who know what the scriptures say, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Again, this doesn't mean that they're not very strong believers or they're necessarily immature. They just may not know what the scriptures say about a certain issue. And, and I used the example last week of alcohol. You know, I grew up, alcohol was wrong. In any context, alcohol was wrong. You didn't drink alcohol. Believers shouldn't drink alcohol. There are still a lot of people who believe that way. But the scriptures don't say drinking alcohol is wrong or a sin overindulgence, drunkenness is a sin. But there are people who go to this church who think alcohol is wrong in any context for any believer. And so those of us who feel like, well, you know, it's okay to have it, drink it, as long as I don't overindulge, as long as I don't cause my brother to stumble, and we demand our rights and we say, well, I, I have every right to drink it because the Bible doesn't say it's wrong. And Paul would say, no. If it bothers your brother or your sister in Christ, if it causes them to stumble, don't do it. It's not worth it. Your rights have nothing to do with this. It's the love of God and it's honoring God and honoring Christ with your behavior. So he continues. He said, don't live to please yourself. And isn't that a challenge for every one of us to live our lives, even as Christians, to please ourselves? Well, I want to do this and so I'm going to do it. And if you don't like it, lump it. Well, that's not how we're called to live. We're called to live, and he's going to give us the example of Jesus Christ. How did Christ live? So he says, don't live to please yourselves, for Christ did not please himself. Live as Christ lived. Now, Philippians 2, and you guys have heard me say this a thousand times. This is one of my favorite passages um, Alan Hull always kind of harasses me. He goes, you have so many favorite passages. This is literally my favorite passage. 
It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, to clung to, to hang on like a dog with a rag, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Have that attitude, have that mindset. Here's Jesus Christ, the son of God, deity, who took on human flesh, humbled himself, came to earth and lived among us, died in our place so that we might be saved. Have that attitude, have that mindset. You guys probably remember the WWJD bracelets that were popular a number of years ago. What would Jesus do? There were all kinds of parodies that came out and jokes about them. And that's really the context, the the way in which we're to live our lives. How would Jesus live? Well, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus was humble. He, He humbled himself. He lived with an attitude of humility. He was still God in human flesh. He was still 100% divine, but he lived among men and he didn't lord over men. He didn't demand that the disciples feed him and meet all his needs and, hey, carry my bags. And he, he, no, he lived like them, he walked with them, he served them, he was humble. He was selfless, he was always giving of himself. He was always ministering, even when he was tired. And he did get tired, why? Because he took on human flesh but he was always willing to meet needs. He was obedient to the father. Whatever the father said to do, he would do. And he wouldn't let anything detract him or distract him from the will of the father. And then he was single-minded. He was, you know, he set his mind to do what God called him to do. See, that's the mindset that we're called to. So when he says, live like Jesus live, Love like Jesus loved. This is what we need to have in mind. What would Jesus do? Well, he'd be humble. He would be selfless. He would be obedient to whatever God is calling him to do. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with every one of these, you know, being humble. Because sometimes I feel like I'm better than somebody else. Or I, why should I do that for them? What are they going to do for me? I'm not necessarily selfless like I need to be. I'm not always obedient because I hear the Holy Spirit speak to me on a regular occasion and I ignore him, whether it's, hey, go share the gospel with that person. Hey, go meet that need. Hey, do this. And I just go, you know, I don't really want to do that today. Jesus was obedient and he was, he was focused. He knew why he was on this planet. Do you know why you're on this planet? And it's not just to make money, raise your kids, be a good husband. Those are wonderful things. Those are right things. Those are God-ordained things. But what's your primary focus? It's, It's to live for him and to be salt and light in a very dark world as his ambassador, as his minister of reconciliation. That's your that's your real focus. But we get distracted. We get taken off course. Jesus lived to please God, not himself. So once again, chapter 15, as he, as he wraps it up, he's going to point to Jesus and he's going to say, that's your model. That's how you should live your life. Is it impossible? Yes. You and I will never be Jesus on this planet, right? We can pursue Christ's likeness. We can pursue holiness. We can move increasingly more into that likeness, but we will never be like him until we see him again in complete holiness when we reach glorification, when that process takes place. Jesus said, and I want you to listen to these words carefully. 
I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but what? To do the will of the one who sent me, God. I came from heaven to earth to do the will of the Father. So from the moment he came to earth as a baby in a manger, his mission, his goal was to fulfill the will of the Father. And he says, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, speaking of those who would come to faith in Christ. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's his motivation? Was it just to die so that men might be saved? No, what does he say? I will raise him up. See, he's not done yet. Jesus Christ is not done yet. Even though on the cross he said, it is finished, that was referring to that specific moment in time, that thing that he was given by God to do. He died, but he rose again. He went back into heaven. And what's he say? I'm coming back. He's not yet done. He's going to fulfill that promise. And we need to live with that promise in mind. And I've said this over the last two to three weeks. You have to live with that moment in your mind your head on a swivel, always looking back at what God has done for you, what he's going to do for you in the future, and that is what motivates your actions today. And if you take your mind off those two things, you lose your focus here and now. Jesus Christ did not lose his focus. Jesus Christ is not sitting up there going, man, I am done and I got nothing more to do. If he doesn't come back, guys, this means nothing. If he doesn't come back and complete the process, our glorification, then we have no hope. So he says, this is the will of God, and he's going to fulfill it. And and in this this passage, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, as he's done all throughout the book of Romans. And he refers to this passage where the reproaches, let me go back to it, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. And he's trying to get these people to understand that Jesus Christ came to die. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to be reproached, to be rebuked, to be rejected. It says, the zeal of your house has consumed me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Again, he's going back to the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament. And he's saying that that was why Jesus came. He was willing to be reproached. He was willing to be rebuked. And what that says to me, am I willing to go through that for him? Am I willing to be rejected? You know, one of the main reasons I don't share my faith is the fear of rejection. Isn't that silly? That I have this good news that I know if this person accepts it, they will have eternal life and rather, and rather than damnation, but I'm afraid they might laugh at me. And it keeps me from sharing the good news. Are you willing to suffer a little bit of rebuke, a little bit of reproach to do the will of the Father, to go and make disciples, to go and share the good news with your friends, your coworkers? See, we will suffer. Jesus said it. Paul tells us we will suffer in this life. We will either suffer for doing good or we will suffer for doing wrong. We will suffer. But are you willing to take a little bit of reproach, a little bit of rebuke, a little scorn, a little shame? Because that's what that word literally means. Scorn, shame, disgrace, rebuke, 
for doing the right thing, for living for Christ. See, the gospel is wonderful news. I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I'm going to heaven. But in the meantime, I've been called to live out the gospel, the good news, among all these people who are lost and going to hell. People we know, people we live with, people we work with, people we associate with. That's the gospel lived out. Rubber meets the road kind of stuff. Am I willing to suffer those things? You know, Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, focus on him, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, went through the death, the punishment of the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what that tells me and what that should tell you is that Jesus Christ went through the pain, the suffering, the ridicule, the scorn, the shame associated with the cross. I can't fathom what that was like to be stripped naked, be nailed to a tree, hung up in front of everybody, have people spit on me, laugh at me, make jokes about me, all for my faith in God. But that's what happened to him. And he endured it. Why? To accomplish the will of the Father. He was willing to go through that so that God's will might be done. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was willing to suffer that he might be glorified. See, you don't get one without the other. Our suffering precedes our glorification. We will suffer in this life because at the end of the day, we don't belong here. We're citizens of a different kingdom. We really don't belong in this world, and this world can't stand what we stand for. And so this idea of suffering is real to us, and it should be something we embrace. I don't look for it. I don't want to go out and find it, but you know what? It's going to be part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, Paul says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Remember, he just quoted from the Old Testament, from the Psalms that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What are the scriptures really all about? Why do we read the Bible? The Bible is a difficult book, right? It's, it's sometimes almost impossible to grasp what it's talking about. We, there are certain sections of the Bible we just ignore. We stay away from because it's difficult. It's hard. It's depressing. There are certain ones we gravitate towards that we like. Why is the Bible there? Why did he give us this book that we might be encouraged, that we might have endurance? You know, when we read and study Hebrews chapter 11 this summer, it's about these incredible people, patriarchs, Old Testament saints who endured much, who had faith in God, went through all kinds of trials, and they're there for our encouragement. They had faith. We should have faith. They endured. We should endure. It's for our instruction. It's for endurance. It's for our encouragement. That's why the scriptures are here. The entire Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is about God and about God's redemptive plan. We did that when we did the study on the history of God and man as we flew through the Bible and looked at what is the whole story of the Bible. It's the redemption of man, and it should encourage us. It should motivate us. It should challenge us. And he says it should give you hope. Isn't it easy to lose your hope in this world? When you look at all that's going around and you look at the political system we've got going right now, and you can begin to lose hope, but he says you should, of all people, you should have hope. And Hebrews tells us hope or faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
things that are out there, things that we know are going to happen because God has promised them and he's put them in his word. They're the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. See, I got to keep my focus on the future, what he's promised to do, or I will lose hope in this world because this world will constantly disappoint me. And so the scriptures are huge when it comes to this issue. And Paul's trying to tell these people, you got to stay in the word. You got to study the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We've got to pour into this word and pour it into our lives and let it change us. See, the scriptures should provide us with hope. When you lose hope, the best place I know to go is the scriptures. Go back to the word of God. Don't just go to your friends and try to get them to encourage you. Go to the scriptures. It tells me how this whole thing's going to wrap up. It ends really well for us. God has a plan. It encourages me. It, it, it never lets me disappointed. It never leaves me with, gee, I wonder how this works out. And that's why the scriptures are critical. That's why Paul, after everything that he said, goes back to the scriptures and says, that's where you get your hope from. That's where you get your endurance from. That's where you get your encouragement from is the word of God. But it's amazing how few of us spend quality time in the word of God on a regular basis. And I just want to challenge you to just motivate yourself, allow the Holy Spirit to motivate you, but it's going to take some effort on your part to get into the word on a regular basis every day. It is possible. I do it every day. Are there days I don't want to do it? You bet. But I'm at a point in my life where I wouldn't miss it for the world. It's, it's, it motivates me. It encourages me. There are days it's difficult. There are days I look at it and go, I have no idea what this means. But I go back and I keep going back. And by the time I'm done with my time in the word in the morning, I always get something out of it. And you know what? I really don't want to know what a day looks like without it. I've had those days before. Don't start your day without the word. There is no excuse under the sun for you not spending time in the word. If you don't have a Bible, I'll buy you one. But if you've got internet, you have a Bible. If you have a smartphone, you have a Bible. There's no reason for you not to read the Bible other than what? I don't want to read the Bible. So be in the word, study the word, make it a part of your life. He says, may the God of endurance, and this is a prayer that he's praying, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. What's the key to us living in harmony, getting along with one another? It is the word of God. Because what are the two words he just used in referring to the scriptures? Endurance and encouragement come from the word of God. Then he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, he's the one who provides it. How does he provide it? Through the word of God. See, I would love to, to, for God to just provide this for me. Hey, Lord, today would you make me encouraged and would you give me endurance? How has God decided to do that for me? I got to spend time in the word. And that's a challenge, right? But if you want to be encouraged, if you want to have endurance in this life, you got to be in the word. And you know what? If you are in the word, he will do it. He will give you those things that you can live in harmony with one another. The reason the church, we don't get along with one another so often is because we're not in the word. We're not encouraged by the word. We don't spend enough time in the word. 
But he's going to go on and talk about this issue of living in accord with one another, in harmony with one another. Remember, he's writing to a church, just like a church like us, probably smaller, made up of multiple house churches, but made up of Jews and Gentiles, made up of slaves and masters, made up of women and men and poor and rich and all kinds of people thrown together. And he says, live in harmony, get along, let Christ direct you. And he says, your accord, your unity should come from Christ. That together with one voice, you glorify God. See, that's the goal for every one of us, that we would live in harmony. And it mirrors what Peter said in his letter. All of you have unity of mind, have harmony. It's almost like a choir. I don't sing in the choir because I don't think Lewis would let me sing in the choir. But what happens in a choir? You have all these different voices, people with high voices, low voices, some with good voices, some with better voices come together and they harmonize and it's a beautiful thing to listen to. And he says, that's what we should have. We should have a harmony when it comes to living together. Does that mean we always get along? We always agree? No, but it means that we are willing to live together and put up with each other's little idiosyncrasies. We're to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, harmonious, like-minded all pursuing the same thing. We want to live together in love. We want to lead people to Christ. And I know I can hear the hail too. We're safe. Your car may not be, but it's just a car. Just let it go. Let it go. So he says, live together in harmony with one voice. See, I, th I think what happens in the world today is that the, the lost world Here's the church, and they hear so much discord coming from the church. They hear so much disunity. Everybody's um, arguing with one another, fighting with one another. And guys, I'm not talking about key doctrines like the divinity of Christ. If somebody's teaching that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God and he's not divine, we need to argue with that person and correct that person and disagree with that person. But if it's a gray area, if it has to do with they speak in tongues and we don't, you know what? We're all going to be a little bit surprised when we get to heaven how wrong we were about a lot of things. But on the, on the key issues, we need to stand for them. But on the gray areas, on some of these things, we need to just, we, we need to have one voice. We need to preach the gospel. We need to love people. And we need to live like Christ. So it, together, one voice to glorify God. That's the goal at the end of the day. Glorify God. Lift him up. Therefore, welcome one another, he says, as Christ has welcomed you. How did Jesus Christ welcome you? With open arms, right? Did you have your act together when he welcomed you? Were you like slick as you could be when he welcomed you? Man, you're the most righteous guy. And he looked down and went, man, you are so righteous. You come out, you, you're on my team. I choose you. You know, that word welcome means to receive to oneself, to admit to one's society and fellowship. I am to welcome you into my life as a brother in Christ. You're to welcome me into your life as a brother in Christ. Why? Because you look like me, act like me. You have the personality I like. You're from the same economic background as me. No, because you're a brother in Christ. I'm to welcome you the same way Jesus Christ welcomed me. I did not have my act together when he welcomed me. You don't have your act together. I don't have my act together. I have flaws, I have foibles, I have all kinds of issues in my life, and you were to welcome me 
greet me and include me with my baggage. And I'm to do the same for you. And that is what makes this thing called the church unique. Man, look at this room. We are all so different. We come from so many different backgrounds. Some of us have baggage that's just hanging all over us. Some of us, we've learned to hide it. And we look a little bit more put together. But you know what? At the end of the day, we all have the baggage. We all have the issues. And we need to accept one another the same way we have been accepted by Jesus Christ. And he makes a point in verse 8. He talks about the circumcised, the Jews. He talks about the Gentiles. Jesus Christ came for both, right? He came to save both because both couldn't save themselves. And he became a servant to both. He became a servant to the circumcised. And yet they rejected him for the most part. And then he became a sacrifice for the Gentiles. He came to save both. He's the promised Messiah to the Jews. Jesus came to save the Jews and he's not done yet. He is the fulfillment of every promise made to Abraham, to David, to Jacob, to Isaac. He's the fulfillment. That's why he came. How about the Gentiles? He's their savior. I am in Christ today because of Jesus Christ and what he's done. I'm part of the family of God because of what Jesus Christ did and the fact that he opened up the gospel to Gentiles like me, like you, and we're part of that. See, he came to save both. He came to bring us together in unity, Jew and Gentile. That was unbelievable in that day and age. And he fulfilled every promise made to the Gentiles. And Paul goes into the Old Testament and he pulls out of the Old Testament as he's prone to do all these passages. And here's, here's where they are. 2 Samuel twenty two fifty. For this all praise you, O Lord, among the nations. That word is literally Gentiles. And sing praises to your name. See, all the way back in 2 Samuel, God is predicting through the prophet that the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jews are going to be included. That's been God's plan all along. Deuteronomy 32, 43, rejoice you nations with his people, with the Jews. It's his plan. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations, all Gentiles, extol him, all peoples. We know at the end of the age when Everything is wrapped up. Jesus Christ has returned. The tribulation period is over. Satan is defeated. There will be a multitude of people standing before the throne of God, worshiping God from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jew, Gentile, because of these promises. God has made that promise. Jesus has fulfilled that promise. Isaiah 11:10 In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. See we have a hope as the people of God as Gentiles we have a hope that one day we will stand before God we will be with Christ we will be glorified we will have this incredible hope fulfilled for us why because of what Jesus Christ did because of the gospel of God the salvation that's made possible for every one of us. And in his name, Jesus Christ, all the nations will hope. See, these last verses, 1 through 13 of chapter 15, are all about hope. Where's your hope right now? Is your hope in some political candidate? Man, I hope not. I really hope not. Your hope better be in God and the fact that he is not done yet, and he's got a plan he's working out, and that plan is perfect. In spite of politicians, in spite of this world, in spite of the lost, and we are to rejoice now in the hope that is to come. 
What's interesting is Isaiah 11, we just read verse 10. He goes on in 11 and 12. He says, in that day, future time, end of the time, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, Israel, from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations, the Gentiles, and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What is God going to do? He is going to fulfill every promise he made to Israel. He's going to fulfill every promise he's made to the Gentiles, and he's going to complete his plan. That's our hope. That's where we have to keep our focus. And so he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. You know what I need more than anything in this life is joy and peace. You know, last night, uh, this weather's been great. And my wife and I sat in the backyard, ate dinner, and it was just a beautiful evening, cool. And, you know, we said, man, this is the time. This is the time of year to live in Texas. Enjoy it while it lasts. But I had kind of a peace and a joy. I'm with my wife. I love her. And it was a wonderful setting. And, but see, it doesn't take much to destroy joy and peace. Just listen to that. Doesn't, that. doesn't that make your spine knot up? Doesn't it? Is that happening at my house? What's happening on my roof? What's happening in my car? It's so easy to lose joy and peace in the midst of the storms of life, and yet we're to have hope because he's a God of hope. He says, may you abound in hope. What kind of hope is he talking about? What's the basis of our hope? It is what is going to happen, that our God is not done as we live in this earth. He's the source of my hope. He should be the source of your hope. Romans eleven thirty six. what did he tell us? Everything comes from God. Everything exists by his power. Everything is intended for his glory. God is in control. That is my hope. But he's also the object of my hope. Everything I need comes from him. Everything should be based on him. He's my hope. I always have to turn back to him. And to be without God is to live a hopeless life. And, and here's the reality. You don't have to be lost to be godless. You can be in Christ, saved, on your way to heaven, and live Godless, as if God doesn't exist. I call it practical atheism. You say you're a believer, you say you believe in God, but you live as if he does not exist because you don't include him in your life, you don't think about him, you don't put your hope in him, you put your hope in this world, your hope in yourself, and it's to live hopeless. What did Paul tell the Ephesian believers? Remember that you were at that time, before coming to Christ, separated from Christ, having no hope and without God. See, the lost people that you know, even the ones who are really wealthy and who live really nice lives and take great vacations, are hopeless. Why? Because they are Godless. And whenever we remove God from our lives by ignoring him, by not being in his word, we become hopeless. You gotta keep your faith your hope focused on him. He is our hope and it produces joy. I need joy. You need joy. Our hope from God and in God should produce joy here and now because when things get tough, when things get rough, if you keep your face focused on the future and what he's done for you, what he's promised for you, what he's going to complete for you, it should bring a sigh of it's going to be okay. He knows what he's doing. I can handle this because my God's in charge. And when you focus on him, when it's God-focused faith, 
and it's faith that he will provide, God provides, it will produce a peace. I can rest. There's some of you in the room who've got health issues. There's some that probably have financial issues, relational issues going on. You know what? You can have joy and peace even in the midst of that. Why? Because God's in control. God knows what he's doing. God is faithful. God loves you. But joy and peace are based on belief. Do you really believe God is who he says he is? Do you really believe he's in charge? Do you really believe he has a plan and he's going to fulfill it? Do you really believe in those things? If you do, it will produce for you and for me joy and peace. But believing is the key. The blessings of God, joy and peace, come from believing. That's what we're going to learn when we study Hebrews chapter 11. These people believed and believed and believed and believed, even though they never saw a lot of the results that they were waiting for. They had faith. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says. It is simply a matter of believing God when he tells us who he is and what he has done and will continue to do for his people. You know what? That's what this is all about. This book tells me who God is, what he has done, and what he's going to do. Do you believe it? It's a matter of believing this book. Is it incredible? Yes. Is it sometimes like, that sounds really weird? Yes. But do you believe it? Do you really believe it's going to end the way he says it's going to end? That he will fulfill everything that he's going to do? If you do, it will produce endurance, encouragement, joy, peace and hope, even in the midst of this world. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to make it possible. I love this from Second Peter. By his divine power, God's power, he's given us everything we need for living a godly life. You have everything you need. You have the word of God. You have the people of God. You have the spirit of God. You have everything you need to live a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know him, Jesus Christ, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. We have everything we need. But you, you got to avail yourself of it. you got to spend time in the word. you got to listen to the Holy Spirit. You've got to surround yourself with believers, right? You need these guys. And you may think, well, they're not that sharp. I've heard them talk at discussion time. You know, you still need them. You need their prayers. You need to be open with them. You need to be honest with them. You need to share with them. You need to call them during the week and see how they're doing. And they need to call you and do the same thing because we need one another. We have everything we need for a godly life. And Paul says in Romans 8, 11, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living in you. You have the spirit of God the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living in you. You have everything you need to live a godly life. But if you don't spend time in his word, if you don't keep focused on the future, the hope, the will of God, what's his will for you, he's not done yet. You'll lose hope. Well, I'm, I'm just going to read this little, last little bit here and then we're done. This is how he closes up the whole letter. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. In other words, Jesus Christ, the gospel, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, including us, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
See how he, he, this is how he wraps up the book. He goes back to, it's all about God. It's all about what he's prophesied. It's all about his promises. It's all about his plan and the fact that he's going to keep it. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. Your God's in control. What, what, an, what an incredibly appropriate way to end with hail, thunderstorms, tornado warnings, alarms going off, panic in your spirit to be reminded, glory be to God. Your God's in control. Man, guys, I, I, my prayer for you is you go into Easter and Easter's coming. As you go into Easter, you would, you would see this Easter in a way you've never seen it before. And you would look at it as not just that Jesus Christ resurrected and the tomb is empty. That's wonderful. But he's coming back. He is coming back. And God is going to wrap this thing up. And that is our hope. And without that hope, we have no hope. Our God is real. And this book is real, and this book is true, and this book is accurate. And our hope is in the fact that everything he said is true, and everything he promised he will complete, and we can have joy and peace, endurance and encouragement in the midst of everything we face, including hail. And if you go outside and your car's all dinged up, you can have joy and peace. If you go home and your roof is destroyed, you can have joy and peace. Because your God's in control, and he knows what he's doing. So here's your discussion question. In what ways have you found God to be the source of your hope? How has he proven to you to be the source of hope? I can have hope in him. And why would, why would that make a difference if we were to focus on God as the object of our hope? How would that change the way you live? If you really began to live, he's the object. He's what I hope in. His faithfulness. What he said he would do, he would do. If I really begin to live like that, how would it change the way you live? So those are your two opening discussion questions. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you for these men. I thank you for their willingness to come week after week and listen to your word. I thank you for their faithfulness to one another. And I pray, Father, that they would walk out of here with an increased desire to be in your word so that they might be encouraged, so they might be uh, taught who you are, and they might walk away with joy and peace and hope because they can trust you. Lord, we do love you. We thank you that you care for us in ways that we can't even imagine. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place, but thank you even more for raising him from the dead. And thank you mostly for the fact that you're going to send him again, that he's coming again. And Father, may it be today. Um, we look forward to that day. Help us to focus on it. Help us to dwell on it. Help us to long for it, Father. And we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, have fun.